The Compliance Perspectives podcast is sponsored by Entrax, the contract lifecycle management solution that is exclusively focused on healthcare. Learn more at www.entrax.com. Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Chirletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Columbus, Ohio is Lindsay Meyer-Bond. Lindsay is Executive Director of the Higher Education Protection Network. And today we're going to be talking about protecting children on campus. Uh, first, Lindsay, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's great talking to you, although I have to admit this is a tough and scary topic to address. Um, mm -hmm. Briefly to start, can you recap what the current legal and regulatory requirements are for protecting children in higher education settings? Unfortunately, there's not a lot, and that's why colleges and universities are taking this upon themselves to enact policies and procedures. We're mostly seeing the legal and regulatory requirements at the state level as you might imagine, Pennsylvania has quite a few laws in this space, but others, um, for instance, in Ohio, where I am, there's not a whole lot regulating. Uh, even as specific as camps, Ohio is regulating day camps, but not overnight camps and nothing particular to higher education or the vast variety of programming that occurs in higher education. There have been some federal laws that have been or are in the works. And there's the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act known as CAPTA, but that mostly just provides funding to states. That's not really a regulatory measure. So um, since Sandusky and Nasser and, and some even before that, a lot of universities have said, okay, we need to have our own policies and procedures so that we're protecting the youth in our space. What a lot of people don't know is that a lot of colleges and universities are actually interacting with more minors and youth than they are college-age students. Wow, that's uh, that's scary, and it's got to be difficult. And leaving it to universities to sort of plot out what they need to do. Um, to that end, what are the key controls universities should have in place? It is difficult. The good thing is, is that a lot of these policies have been in place for eight plus years. So people aren't having to start from scratch anymore. So that's positive. Most colleges and universities are for most requiring reporting of known or suspected abuse. That's the, the goal of these policies to recognize when a child may be abused or neglected and knowing how to report that. A lot of universities are also requiring background checks of those interacting with kids. That may be different than the background checks that they get upon hire, so that can be a little tricky, but uh, that's a, a fun one to unpack with your legal team at, and HR team at your university. There's training and education for abuse recognition and reporting, especially because most people aren't reporting on a daily basis. That training and education is really important so that you know what to look for and know what to do when you see something. There's also a requirement to register programs into a central repository so that individuals on campus and related properties know what's occurring when and where with youth. 
that may be as deep as knowing which kids are actually in those programs or just which staff and volunteers are in the programs and when they're occurring. There's a standards of behavior or code of conduct that most institutions implement and that includes a prohibition on one-on-one -on -one interactions. That language can vary depending on the institution, but at most institutions, you cannot have an intentional one-on-one -on -one interaction with a minor. Those are kind of the core pieces of what we see in this space, but some other institutions are now starting to look at medical history and information even before COVID, but especially since COVID, that's become a popular topic. And there's variance in scope too. So some universities are saying third-party programs are in scope. They have to comply with everything in our policy. Others are saying, we're just gonna handle our internal affairs and the third parties are responsible for their own stuff. Student orgs is very similar. A lot of colleges and universities say, we wanna keep student orgs at distance and other institutions are saying, nope, they're within scope. We want to manage that process. So the, the scope varies, uh, but the regulations, the, the controls are pretty consistent. And then most institutions are also conducting site visits, going out and visiting programs and making sure that they're doing what they say they're doing and that they're getting their training completed and their code of conduct and their registration and background checks and all of those pieces. There's a lot there. So where amidst all of that are institutions struggling the most when it comes to being in compliance, whether it's with federal state laws or with their own sets of regulations that they put in place internally? That is a great question. And I think the biggest challenge is just not knowing what we don't know. There's always new programs. There's a lot of turnover in higher education. There's a lot of directors, new directors that are running them. So you may have awareness with one group of people, but then the next year it's a new camp director and you're having to completely re-educate and make sure that people are aware of the policy and the requirements. There's kind of the proverbial neighbor's kid in the lab, which does happen a lot. The neighbor's kid wants to know what's going on at your prestigious institution and to see what you're doing in the lab. and you bring this child into the lab and no one knows about it. Sometimes it's occurring in spaces without windows or visibility into the room after hours because normally the child is in school. So awareness in general is a problem or can be a problem in, in ensuring compliance. And these policies are also different than say nepotism policies. A nepotism policy says you can't supervise your, your spouse but these policies have actual action items and costs associated with them. So you have to take a training, you have to participate and, and pay for a background check. Programs are really unique and it can be difficult to have overarching requirements. Some institutions have exemption policies or procedures so that they can help ensure compliance in the, the pieces that matter. For instance, at Ohio State, there is a private flight lesson program. So while most institutions prohibit one-on-one -on -one interactions, this private flight lesson, the FAA says, you can only have an instructor and a student in the plane. So that would violate the one-on-one -on -one interaction. So there's some flexibility at some schools where you can say, okay, while you're in the air, you can have this one-on-one -on -one interaction, but as soon as you're on the ground, 
you can't be just one-on-one. Wow. Um, So what are some of the strategies and best practices for success out there? Having a solid policy and a comprehensive ongoing communication plan is is what I recommend. You can have the best well-polished policy out there, but if you don't have the communication plan that goes along with it and ongoing because of that turnover factor, then you're not going to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. The good news is, is that there's resources now. Unlike seven years ago, eight years ago, when a lot of people were starting in this field, for instance, Higher Education Protection Network, HEPNET, we have a, a great community of a couple hundred people that do this day in and day out and are always willing to provide thoughts and feedback and share policies. We have a benchmark spreadsheet, which is really helpful. And I wish I had that when I went into the field years ago to identify what are the trends that we're seeing with training, what are the trends we're seeing with scope, so that you can start to align with those national standards. And HEPNET offers a boot camp in recent years, which really helps those starting out too, to just know where where to start and what to do. Years ago, we were seeing people in this field from programming, from compliance, from risk. There was no one path that got you there. And it's been really cool to see in the last couple of years, we've seen people either move from one school to another with experience or coming from somewhere like NCMEC or Safe Sport and then going into an institution. So we're really seeing people with a lot of good experience coming into these positions now, which is going to help for success. I would imagine it most definitely would. Now, you mentioned trends. What are some of the emerging trends and issues that compliance teams should begin thinking about now? There's two really big hot topics on the table right now. One is NIL, the name image and likeness with athletes. Some schools have coaches that are third parties. And so there's discrepancy on if that coaches camp falls in scope or not. But now with NIL, we can have any of these premier college athletes running camps and they may or may not be in scope of their institution's policy. The NCAA is not regulating this. So that is of concern to me because they're kids. They, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what to think about in terms of working with other kids. A lot of times there's a small range of ages. You may have campers that are 17 and people working in the camp that are 18 or vice versa. And that can be challenged for many different reasons. So NIL is something that is on a lot of people's radar in terms of compliance and emerging issues and how we address that. And dual enrollment is as well. I actually just had a conversation earlier today with someone. She was asking, why are dually enrolled students not in scope of a lot of these policies? And a lot of times it's just because of logistics. So if you have a 15-year-old high school student who's enrolled at a university, a lot of times the professor doesn't know who is, what age their students are. When I was teaching at a university, I didn't know the age of my students. So if you have a prohibition on one-on-one interactions, that takes away the ability to have office hours with the student or to know who the, these students are. 
that would also require all faculty being trained background check code of conduct and there's a lot of hurdles to tackle with that so dual enrollment most policies do not include in scope but the risk manager field the compliance field are starting to pick up on this a little and ask more questions so it'll be interesting to see how that may change in the coming years it will definitely be worth watching well uh, Lindsay thank you so much for sharing these insights in this vexing issue with us I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen I'm Adam Turtletaup from SCCE and HCCA I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective <music>